Acts chapter 15 is where we're gonna go. So uh, several years ago, I got a phone call from a good friend of mine. He and I have been friends for decades and he's one of those friends that surely we all have a friend like this. He's one of those friends that when it comes to his relationship with Jesus, he's on again, off again. Like, you know, when he, when he is on, he is like all in in Jesus. You know, like Thursday night, youth camp, I went to the altar again, kind of like in to Jesus. Like when he is in, he is in. And then there are these moments when he is just running and just like, he is in when he's in. When he is running, he is running. And it's just kind of been uh, the journey of our friendship. I remember several years ago, he, he called me in one of these seasons when he was off again. He was running uh, again. And I'll never forget, uh, I pick up the phone and he begins kind of describing some of the stuff that he was wrestling with. And he wouldn't call these things that he was wrestling with, he wouldn't call them sins. He wouldn't call them struggles. Uh, he just thought they were choices, choices that were his to make, the choices that were his right to make, that uh, were about his happiness. And so I remember I'm sitting there on the phone and, and he's just kind of laying out some of these choices. And as he's talking, I, I began to discern very clearly because of what he is saying, that he was like right on the edge of hitting the eject button on his marriage and on his children and jumping into a relationship with another woman and going down a path that was gonna not just disrupt his relationship with Jesus, it was gonna disrupt everything that he held so, so dear in his life. And there's this moment where he gets to the end of kind of laying everything out for him. He says, Dave, Dave what do you think? And the whole time he's talking, I'm just praying. I'm like, God, would you give me the ability to, to live in the middle of grace and truth? Would you help me tell him like exactly what he needs to hear? But would you help me to, to say it in such a way that he can actually hear it? Because I really realized that my friend was in one of those moments. It was a life and death moment, not physically speaking in that moment, but he was in this life and death moment where he was making a decision that would put him forever on a trajectory away from God if he didn't return. And I remember just like weighing it so carefully and I start saying some things with love and with grace, but such truth that were really hard things. And I remember as I'm sharing it with him, he kind of cuts me off. And he says, he says, Dave, I thought you loved me. He said, I thought of everybody, of all my friends, that, that you loved me, that, uh, that, that you cared about my happiness. I'll never forget, he says, he says don't you care if I'm happy? I said, I said, first and foremost, I care that you're holy, that you're in good standing with God. And I don't know if you have any other friends that will tell you, and I believe that when you're in good standing with God, it'll bring about your happiness, but that's what I care about. And he's just he's frustrated and gets off the phone. And there's this moment where I found myself living in this tension where I was deeply rooted in the convictions of Jesus in his way of life and what it is that he says is good and what it is that he says is beautiful. I found myself in this tension between my convictions in Jesus and my compassion in Jesus towards my friend. And it's in one of those moments where my buddy was just kind of reminding me with his frustration and his anger, what you and I experience every day in our culture. We live in a culture that says you can't have both. You can't have grace and truth. You can have one or the other. You can't have conviction or compassion. You can have one or the other because we live in a cultural moment that says if you don't care about my happiness, if you don't care about what I care about, if you don't celebrate what I celebrate, you don't love me. And we live in a world that has constantly shouted the message that, that love, compassion, is synonymous with total celebration, total condoning of everything and everyone, everything that goes on, and we live in this tension. What does it look like to walk out the ways of Jesus with conviction to the truth and compassionate 
grace. And I, I won't make you raise your hand, but my, my sentiment, my, my guess would be every single one of us has found ourselves in that tension. And this is the call of the church. And the question is, not if we go to one side or the other, not if we get into a little country club of spirituality and hold on to all of our convictions, but make sure nobody knows about them, or live with radical compassion to a world that is hurting and broken. The question is not, can we do those two things, but it's how do we do those two things? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he comes and in John chapter one says, he is not just grace and he is not just truth. He is the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. In other words, if you have grace without truth, you don't have Jesus. And if you have truth without grace, you don't have Jesus either. And as a church, we don't get to pick and choose if we stand with conviction or with compassion. We ask the Spirit of God to say, hey, would you help us do both? But the reality is we live in a culture where sometimes your convictions in Jesus don't feel very compassionate to the world that we're sent to love and minister to. And the question that I want us to wrestle with this morning as we come to Acts 15 is, what does it practically look like as a community to be rooted in the conviction of Jesus, but to be radical with the compassion of Jesus in the midst of a confused and messy and really broken culture? Because I believe the, the future of the church depends on it. And I love this moment in Acts chapter 15. If you've been following along with the story Jesus has done exactly what he said he would do. He returns to heaven in Acts chapter one. He pours out the spirit of God on the church in Acts chapter two. And all of a sudden they have this boldness for the mission that Jesus has called them into. And this mission begins to spread into the city that they were located in at the time, Jerusalem. And then it goes beyond Jerusalem into Judea, the surrounding area, and then into Samaria, just like Jesus uh, would said would happen. And then you get to Acts chapter 10 and beyond. And all of a sudden, this good news begins to go to new places. And these new places were not familiar with the God of this good news. And here's what you're gonna notice as we read through the rest of the book of Acts is every time the good news goes into a new place, it raises new questions. That every time the, the good news of Jesus comes into a new culture, the culture wrestles with how do we live out this truth in the midst of all of the brokenness and the baggage and the cultural norms and the things that we find ourselves in. And I love there's this unusual story in the book of Acts where this church living on mission, powered by the Holy Spirit, begins to wrestle with how do we hold on to our convictions? How do we wrestle those out with radical compassions on behalf of the culture that we've been sent to reach? And it unfolds in this really unusual moment. So just a bit of a trigger warning. There's some weird stuff in the story that we're looking at. And there's some stuff that you're gonna wanna Google, some stuff that you're gonna search out. There's some stuff that you wanna wrestle with. I wish we had an hour to talk today, but we don't. We've got 30 minutes. And I can't spoon feed you everything you need, but I wanna give you some things to chase down on your own because I believe your, abil your ability to be faithful to the mission of Jesus depends on you understanding some of these things. The story picks up uh, after Paul and Barnabas. We saw that last week. They were sent out into this mission. And several years have gone by since the story that we looked at last week. And the, new, the good news has gone into some really unexpected places. And it's brought up all these questions. And now they have to wrestle with it. Verse one, it goes like this. It says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and they were teaching the believers. Here's the weird part. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, you know, I was sitting around thinking, man, what do dads want to hear about on Father's Day? And I thought, <laughs> here's what they want to hear about, chopping off part of their wiener. Like, that's what they, that, that's the thing they want to hear about. Like, I don't know if you know what a circumcision is. 
I would recommend don't Google it. Um, <laughs> Wikipedia is a safer route to understand what's going on here. But I'll come back and explain this in a moment. No pictures will be involved, I promise. Verse two, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them, which is good. Like, <laughs> they recognize, hey, that's not true. We've gotta wrestle this down to the ground. Along with some other believers, they were sent to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. So just so you, you kind of get the picture, the good news is going into these new cultures, and they begin wrestling with, okay, what does it mean for these people who didn't grow up the way that we grew up to really live out the ways of Jesus with us? And so they go down to the church in Jerusalem, which is where the movement of God began to kind of wrestle this stuff down to the ground. Verse five, it says, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, that was, that was one group of Jewish believers, they said, the Gentiles, anyone who did not grow up Jewish, must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and the elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter, who's one of Jesus' good friends, got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And so he points them back to this moment that it happened more than a decade earlier. We talked about it in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. He says, hey, you remember what the Spirit of God did in this new community? Remember that? He keeps going, verse eight. He says, God who knows the heart, he showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke or a teaching that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe, listen to this, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved just as they are. He says, listen, it's not your works, it's not your rituals, it's not what you do for God. The way that you're saved is because of the kindness of Jesus and the kindness of Jesus alone. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James, who was the brother of Jesus, he spoke up and said, brothers, listen to me. Simon, or Peter as you know him, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name into the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it's written. And then James begins to read from Amos chapter nine, this passage out of the Bible, out of the Old Testament. He said, after this, I will return and will rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins, I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. So he gets done reading the scriptures, verse 19. He says, so it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest of times and is still read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of God. Welcome to church on Father's Day. Circumcision, food, devoted to idols, wrestling with what it means. And I go, this is a weird story. And if you've ever had one of those moments where you're reading through the Bible and you go, I don't know what to do with that, man, you are in great standing because we've all been there. 
But just because you don't understand it on first reading doesn't mean that God doesn't have something significant for you in the midst of it. And it's one of those moments in the scriptures that I think is so huge. They're, they're, they're convicted about what God is trying to do in the world and they're trying to wrestle with that conviction in a way that is compassionate on behalf of the culture that they're trying to reach. And it brings them into this moment where a group of believers by the power of the Holy Spirit under the authority of God's word, they begin to wrestle this out in community. What does it look like to be the church right here and right now? And there's so many things that we could look at this morning, but I think in order to understand Acts 15, you have to start by understanding what Acts 15 is not. And so if you take notes, uh, I just wanna start with this first big idea. I want us to understand what this story is not. And here's what it is not. Acts 15 is not permission for us to compromise the truth in order to reach the culture. Acts 15 is not a story in which we receive permission to compromise the truth in order to reach the culture. I've heard Acts 15 preached so many times. I've heard it just absolutely destroyed brutally. People say, hey, look at this moment. Look at this moment where the good news goes into a new place and the good news is uncomfortable for the culture. And so look at how the leaders came together and they threw out the truth and they threw out the scripture and they threw out the customs and they watered it down to make Jesus more palatable. And I just want you to hear this very clearly. Acts 15 is not permission. It is not permission for us to compromise truth in order to reach a culture. And there's all these things that we could look at in the story if you really kind of dive in deep to it. But I just kind of give you a couple of things as we think under this first big idea. Uh, I want you to notice what they're wrestling with here is not whether or not they're hold on to the scriptures. They're wrestling with whether or not they will hold on to all of the traditions that they had stacked on top of the scriptures. You see this back in verse one. It's, it's really important that you notice the language here. They says, unless you're circumcised according to the customs, They've been taught. This is a shorthand in their language in their day where they would refer to the difference between that which they believed to be inspired from God and that which they just believed to be practical from people. The difference between tradition and scripture is the thing that they're weighing here. They're not wrestling with if they throw out the Old Testament. I've heard people read Acts 15 and they say, see, this is the reason we don't follow the Old Testament. Jesus, in Matthew chapter five, verse 18, he says, I wanna be clear on this. I did not come to throw away the Old Testament. He says, I did not come to abolish the law. He says, I came to fill it full of meaning. I came to help you understand it in ways that you've never understood it. And so one of the traditions that they're wrestling with right here is this tradition that had been stacked upon this truth or this moment that had come through the life of this guy named Abraham. And it's all around the reality of circumcision. I don't have enough time to, to get into all the nitty gritty of it, but I'll just kind of give you a little bit of a framework if you go back to the book of Genesis, it's the first book in the Bible. There's this guy named Abraham. And God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm gonna bless your family so that your family can be a blessing to the rest of the world. God says, I wanna make a promise to you. And you get to Genesis chapter 17 and God says, the sign of that promise, the sign of this covenant between us is gonna be the sign of circumcision. Now, for us, this is crazy. This is bloody. This is brutal. This is intimate. I mean, it's just, it is a crazy thing, but I want you to understand what's behind it. You know, I just think about this moment. If you read Genesis 17, it tells us that Abraham circumcised himself. Now, I don't know what the hardest thing you've ever done in your life is. I'm just telling you. 
That, I mean, have you ever, can you imagine? He's having quiet time with the Lord. He's like, now I gotta go out to the garage and find a pair of scissors. Like, this is really bad. Like, he comes back in and his wife's like, what did you do to yourself? God told me to, you know, it's just crazy. And I know that's uncomfortable. Some of you are embarrassed, you'll never come back. But this is the Bible that we read. This is the story. There's this crazy, bloody, uncomfortable moment. But I want you to understand what it signified. Uh, God said, hey, Abraham, I'm holy. And I wanna be in relationship to you, but you've gotta understand, you've got this nature, this human nature, this fleshly nature that is constantly at war with my holiness. God says, I wanna invite you into this symbolic thing where you literally, painfully, cut off your fleshly nature and you throw it away so that in your heart you are reminded that you've been called to walk in a different way. So during the days of Abraham, during the days of the Jewish people, there was this thing that men would go through to symbolically be reminded that in order to be in friendship with God, their nature as humans had to be cut off and thrown away so they could walk in joyful obedience. Now Jesus comes along and Jesus, who is the son of God, he doesn't throw away the significance of that moment. He says, I wanna fill that moment full of meaning. And it's what Paul talks about in Colossians chapter two. You can read it later today. But in Colossians chapter two, Paul is gonna say, as you are baptized by faith into Christ, he says, you are, you are experiencing the circumcision of your heart. He says, no longer do you have to be circumcised by people to be in good standing with God. He says, Jesus he was your circumcision. He was the one who was cut off. He was the one who was bloodied. He was the one that was thrown away so that your old nature could be discarded and your new nature in Christ could raise up. But over the years, this tradition was built on top of this truth that was handed out to Abraham. And the Jewish people began to believe that it was fundamentally impossible to be in good standing with God unless you did this physical act. And so what they're wrestling with here, I want you to notice, they're not wrestling with the scriptures, they're wrestling with the traditions that had been placed on top of the scriptures, but they're not just wrestling with tradition, uh, they're also wrestling with their understanding of salvation and sanctification. And so not only are they not compromising the scriptures, they're not compromising their understanding of holiness. You get down to the end, verses 19, 20, and 21, there's this moment where James, the brother of Jesus, he stands up and he says, hey, we shouldn't make it hard for people to come to Jesus. He says, but there are a few things they need to watch out for. He says, they need to watch out for food that's being sacrificed to idols. They need to watch out from drinking blood and that pagan worship practice that they need to do. They need to watch out for sexual immorality. And he begins to list some things that will trip them up as they're turning to Jesus. And here's what I want you to hear. He is not debating whether or not those things make them saved. Remember the very first verse, what they're wrestling with is, what does it take to be saved? Peter says, here's what it takes to be saved, Jesus Christ and the kindness of Jesus alone. That's what it takes to be saved. But James says, if you don't understand some of the things that you're encountering every day in your culture, it'll make it very difficult for you to turn back to God. And so he starts speaking into the culture that they were reaching, a culture that was dominated by idol worship, so during their days, they would show up at the pagan temples and they would drink blood, which sounds crazy to us. It was just a part of their practice. They would drink blood and sacrifice to idols. They would participate in sexual immorality. I'll just say this, I know it's not popular, but my job is not to win a popularity contest. I just wanna say it truthfully. In the scriptures, anytime you read this phrase, sexual immorality, it is referring to any sort of sexual activity outside of a marriage between one man and one woman any sexual activity. 
He's saying, hey, you gotta watch out for what's happening in the temples that will trip you up. You gotta watch out for your, your, your sexual immorality that is springing up in your life. He says, these things will disrupt what God is trying to do in your life. And he's not wrestling with, do they have to do these things to be saved? He's saying, hey, if you don't avoid these things, it will disrupt the work that the Spirit of God is trying to do in your life. You know, for years, I worked on a college campus. And when I was working on campus, every, every week I'd sit down with guys that were beginning to turn to Jesus and having conversations of faith with them. And the conversation was almost always the same. I'd say, God is doing something in your life, but as he's drawing you to himself, man, you've gotta be so careful. You've gotta quit sleeping with your girlfriend. You gotta quit looking at pornography. You gotta quit getting drunk and getting high and doing all these things. Did I believe that them avoiding those things would save them? Absolutely not. Only Jesus can save you. But I knew if they did not let go of those things, it would disrupt what God was trying to do in their life. And there's this moment where, where James, the brother of Jesus, says, how is a person saved? How is a person made right with God? He says, it's through Jesus alone. But there are these things that if they don't avoid them, it will keep them from experiencing the work of God in their life right here and right now. You know, it's Father's Day, and so I use this illustration. You know, it's the difference be, between becoming a dad and becoming a good dad. You know, I became a dad in a moment. You know, I remember when my first son was born, I was like, boom. Whether I was ready to be a father or not, that's still up for debate. But all of a sudden, my son is born and I'm now a father. I became a father instantly. But I'll spend the rest of my life trying to become a good father. And what these leaders are wrestling with is they're saying, hey, a person becomes a follower of Jesus instantly as they place their faith in Jesus. They become something new instantly. That's salvation but they spend the rest of their life growing into that which they have become. In other words, Jesus takes you just as you are, but he never leaves you as you are. And we say this every week in our church, like come as you are, you come as you are, but Jesus will never leave you there. And for, in order for us to understand Acts 15, we have to understand what Acts 15 is not. Acts 15 is not permission for us to compromise truth in order to accommodate or reach a culture. They're not throwing out the scriptures, they're wrestling with tradition. They're not lowering the bar on holiness, they're making sure they understand the entry point into salvation. So that's what it's not. Then the question is, number two, if that's not what it is, what is it? And I believe Acts 15 is a powerful picture of what it looks like for a church to live in the tension between grace and truth. Acts 15 is this powerful picture of what it looks like for a church to live in this tension between grace and truth, between conviction and compassion in the midst of a culture that was really messy for them. You see them wrestling with all of these convictions, and I'll just name a few of them out of Acts 15. They're wrestling with this conviction that the world is lost and that Jesus alone is the one that saves. You see this conviction driving these early followers of Jesus. They're convicted that the, the world around them doesn't need a life coach, doesn't need just a therapist, doesn't need some principles, doesn't need somebody to pat them on the back. The world around them needs a savior. And so there's this, there's this conviction that the world is lost, but not just that the world is lost, that Jesus alone is the hope of the world. It's the kindness of Jesus. It's not them getting baptized or circumcised or saying the right thing or giving enough money. That the thing that brings a person into good standing with Jesus starts with the kindness of God. 
And so you see this conviction at work that the world is lost and that Jesus alone is the hope of the world. You see this other conviction at work that the ways of Jesus are actually the best ways. And so I see this all the time like with the church where we almost apologetically present the good news as though it's actually bad news. Well, I know this is what God's calling you to. I'm sorry, it's real hard. There's this conviction There's this conviction that begins to stir in the people of God when we're filled by the Spirit of God that Jesus is the fullness, not just of grace and truth, but he's the fullness of life. That he's come to give life and life to the fullness. And we begin to believe when we really encounter Jesus that his teachings on sexuality and on money and on forgiveness, on friendship, that his ways are the best ways. They're good ways. And that he loves us. And that he knows best. And as I've been looking at this picture of them being convicted by truth, one of the things that I've been so challenged by this week is in the American church, our seemingly lack thereof. The church in America, guys, we are so devoid of godly conviction. I was with a group of pastors recently and they're wrestling with like, you know, like how sinful really is the world? Does the cross really matter? Is Jesus really the only way? And I go, guys, I was with these pastors and I go, man, this is spiritual malpractice. So we see all over our culture, it'd be like you showing up to the doctor and the doctor says, you have stage four cancer, but instead of telling you the truth, here's some cotton candy. I hope you feel better when you leave. Like all across our culture, the church, we're compromising the truth, we're not convicted by the world's lostness or Jesus's uniqueness or the beauty of who he's called to be. And I love you see this church that's driven by conviction, but it's not just driven by conviction. It's not just driven by truth, it's driven by grace. It's driven by grace. Look, look back at verse two. It says in verse two, when they hear about this, Paul and Barnabas, they leave Antioch. They go down to Judea, Jerusalem. Do you know how far of a walk it was from Antioch to Jerusalem? During the days of Acts 15, the shortest way you could get there, it would take you 300 miles by foot. 300 miles. If you had the fastest donkey in the market during those days, you're traveling 15 miles a day. It's a 15 day journey in one direction. These guys giving up their time, their money, their energy, everything, why? Because they believed the souls of humanity mattered. I go, there are some of us who our coworkers are lost and we know it. And yet you won't make the trip across your office complex from your cubicle to theirs. We won't pick up the phone. We won't have the conversation with the family member because it'll make Thanksgiving awkward. We live in a world that is devoid of conviction and devoid of compassion. And what you see is this compassion leads them to go. It leads them to move. And they lean in, but they don't just lean in. It says when they come to them, they say, man, we've got to make this We've gotta make this clear. I love verse 19 and 20. What James says is James says, we do not need to make this difficult for people that are turning to Jesus. He says, God expects much of our holiness, but man, the entry into the kingdom of God is just the kindness of Jesus. And we've gotta make that as clear as day. And it's the tension that we feel of how do we help people take a step in without watering down who Jesus actually is. And I go, do you feel that tension? Do you feel it? And I go, this is what you see. And I go, this, is, this has been the wrestle. This has been the struggle of our church for 10 years. I, I remember 10 years ago when we were starting Ethos, just a few people in my living room, this little Bible study. 
And we had all these people around us that weren't yet followers of Jesus and now asking them, hey, what are some of the barriers between you and faith in Jesus? And there's so many things that came back to us, but I'll just share one of them with you. I remember over and over, some of my friends that weren't Christians would say, yeah, you know, for us, one of the barriers is I'm just scared to death of going into a church building. I know the people in there are nice, but every time I walk in and I see the steeple and I see the way that people are dressed up, I just feel so like condemned and embarrassed and scared, I don't know where to go. And uh, we just started asking the question, okay, if, if that's a barrier, you know, that's one of our traditions, that's where we always met as the people of God in these beautiful, ornate buildings, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's a barrier, what would happen if we let go of that barrier so they could experience reality that Jesus Christ is the son of God who loves them, he died for them, he was raised for them so they could know him. And we just started asking the question, hey, where do you feel most at home? And do you know what they'd say? <laughs> they'd say bars and nightclubs and music venues. Uh, for some of you, you've been showing up here so long, this feels like a church building to you, but have you looked around? You know what this is? You know how we meet in this place? We meet in this place because 10 years ago, we were wrestling with what does it look like to be marked by the conviction of Jesus, but to live it out in a way that is so compassionate that those who don't yet know him in our culture can step in. And how do we begin to wrestle that out? And what happens, and you'll see this over the next several weeks as we keep wrestling this to the ground, is as they live in this tension between conviction and compassion, all of a sudden the church is compelled with the love of God with such power that the gospel keeps going into new places. And every time it goes into a new place, there's new questions to be addressed, but they do it in a way that never diminishes the reality of Jesus. I think this is an important word for our culture. Because I think sometimes in our American culture, we are so desperate for the culture to like us, we lose the ability to be useful to the culture. We're so desperate for the culture around us to approve of us. We don't know how to speak the truth in love. And so what we end up becoming is this little country club where we hold on to our beliefs in private, but publicly we're totally useless. You know, several months ago, one of my good friends, a guy from Sierra Leone, his name's Shadonke Johnson. If you were here the first Sunday of the year, he preached for, he, for me. Just an amazing dude. And I was with Shadonke uh, a few months ago, and I said, Shadonke, you spend a lot of time in the States. From your perspective, what's the biggest barrier? What's the biggest hangup you see with American Christians? And he didn't even hesitate. He said, American Christians are so desperate to be liked by the culture. They've lost their usefulness to the culture they're trying to reach. And he gave this image that's just stuck with me ever since. He says, you have friends and family members that are stuck in spiritual prisons. And instead of partnering with God to break the bars and to bring them out of those spiritual prisons, he says, what you've done is you've partnered with the enemy to make them comfortable, as, comfortable in their beds as they prepare for hell, for hell. He says, you take them food, you take them blankets, you encourage them exactly as they are, never calling them to be more in Christ. And he says, you wanna comfort them in prison I wanna set him free. And I went, man, God, may that not be true of us. What is the church? The church is a group of people under the lordship of Jesus, anchored in his conviction, radical in his compassion, working in truth, demonstrated in grace for the goodness of the people that we're trying to reach. But the reality is it's tough. <laughs> It's tough. Some of you are sitting here right now going, how do I do this? And we'll just end like this very quickly. I think there's just kind of three quick pictures that you see in this text. 
Help us understand how we live in the tension in the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. I'm gonna go through this real quick. You can dig into this on your own. The first is it starts with learning to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit. It starts by learning to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit. I love verse eight where he says, this is Peter speaking. He says, God who knows the heart, he showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit. The mark of God's work in somebody's life is the presence of his spirit. God does not pour out his spirit into anybody's life that he's not wanting to change and inhabit and bless. Like, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, I love the disciples, they get together and they say, how do we wrestle with this tension between being convicted in the truth and compassionate and grace? How do we find ourselves in the midst of that? And they start by looking at the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter says, remember the spirit was poured out. And then they start talking about the signs and wonders. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, you cannot judge a person's heart because you never know what's going on in the heart. He says, but you can judge a person's fruit. Did you know that, church? Did you know that Jesus says, don't judge a person's heart, but you can judge their fruit? In other words, you may not know the roots of their life, but you can know the fruit of their life. And he says, you start to look for righteousness and love and obedience and joy and peace and faithfulness and kindness. He says, you start looking for those things and you start recognizing the work of God in their life. And so how do we live in the midst of this messy culture with grace and truth, conviction and compassion? It starts by learning to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit. But it's not just the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it's the work of the Holy Spirit as it's been discerned through the lens of the scriptures. And this is one of the challenges in our culture. This is one of the pitfalls. So often we make our feelings synonymous with the spirit. If it feels good, if it seems good, if it looks good, it must be good. Guys, that was the original downfall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It says they looked at the tree, it seemed good, it seemed pleasing, and so they made a judgment call that because it felt good, it must be good. And I love this, you see this in the, this moment. They're beginning to discern the work of the Holy Spirit and James, the brother of Jesus, goes, whoa, what do the scriptures say about this? And he starts reading through the scriptures and they come to Amos chapter nine and he goes, whoa, this is what the word of God said we could expect what we're seeing here in the culture. And I know this is stepping all over toes. I'm just saying this with love, guys. If you want to live in the tension of conviction and compassion, truth and grace, it's gonna require so much more than you sitting in a coffee shop, discerning your feelings and talking about your favorite podcast. It's gonna require you fixing your eyes on Christ, discerning the work of the Holy Spirit and weighing it against the whole counsel of God's word. I'm not asking you if you found a verse. I'm not asking if you've discovered a feeling. I'm asking you if by the power of the Holy Spirit, under the authority of God's word, does it line up with what Christ has revealed? How do we live in conviction and compassion, grace and truth? It's seeing the work of the Spirit. It's discerning it against the scriptures. And last but not least, it's walking it out in the context of mature community. Mature community, that's the key word here. This isn't just you getting in a group of two or three people, your same age, your same experience, saying, how do we figure this out on our own? I love what happens. Paul and Barnabas, they make the trip, they get into the scriptures, they get down with some of their mentors and some of their leaders, and they say, hey, this thing that we're discerning, does it line up with the spirit? Does it line up with the word of God? What does it say in the context of community? And this is what I see happening, like even right now in, in our church, you know, our elders over the last several months, they've been weighing and wrestling with some of the stuff we see going on in our culture. 
And every week they've been fasting, they've been praying, they've been studying the word of God, they've been coming together. They've been saying, hey God, would you help us in the context of community by the power of your Holy Spirit discern what your word has said about this thing that we're experiencing? And I go, what does it mean to be the kinds of people that when we get the phone calls from our friends and those moments when they're saying, hey, would you celebrate my wickedness? Would you condone this act of sinfulness? What does it look like in those moments to say, God, by your grace and your power, I'm gonna speak the truth in love, convicted that your way is good, that your word is true, that it is authoritative, and that when we live into those convictions, it makes us the most compassionate, life-giving, wonderful people on planet Earth. And when we do that, we as a church become helpful to the culture that we're trying to reach. I go, where are you? You know, some of you here, you're not followers of Jesus. You're not in good standing with Jesus and you know it. And here's what I love. Jesus says, come exactly as you are. You don't have to do 10 different things to get in good standing with Jesus. Good news, no circumcision required. Like just come to Christ exactly as you are. But he will not leave you as you are. And if you're interested in following Jesus, there's gonna be some men and women at the Respond Banner. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, answer any questions that you have. For the rest of you, there are some of you here that are followers of Jesus and maybe you've been convicted. Maybe uh, you've been so compassionate at times that you've hidden the truth, thrown away the truth and you haven't been very helpful to the people in your life and maybe this morning you just need to repent. <laughs> maybe you need to ask God to strengthen you. Maybe you need to make some phone calls and set some things straight. Or maybe you're on the other side of it and you've been so hard-nosed in your legalism, you've been so hard-nosed in the rules that you've made it impossible for the people around you to see the beauty of Jesus. And maybe you need to repent and ask God to soften you. So here's what we're gonna do. I wanna invite you to stand up with me right now. We're gonna go to the communion tables. I'm gonna pray over you first, but we're gonna go to the communion tables. And we're gonna take the bread and we're gonna take the cup. And as we do that, we're gonna be reminded that it is the grace of Jesus and the grace of Jesus alone that opens the door into the kingdom of God and then together we all grow into it. And if you wanna receive prayer, come receive prayer. There's gonna be some questions on the screen to talk about as you take communion at your seats. Father, I love you and I thank you for the gift, the gift of these people, the gift of this day, the gift of your scriptures. God, in the name of Jesus, if I said anything that detracts from who you are and what you wanna do in our lives, help us to forget it, Lord, and forgive me for that. God, anything that was of you, God, let it bear great fruit in your church here. God, may we be pleasing to you first and foremost. And may we be a blessing to our culture around us as we walk in your ways. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.